Good morning, everybody. I'm excited this morning. We're going to start a new three-week message series entitled Setting Things Straight, and it'll be coming from a book in the Bible called Titus. And it's important you have a long eye. It's Titus. So when you're at home for lunch, what did you talk about at church today? Titus is not correct. Titus is what it's called. It is in your New Testament, and there's only three chapters to it. If you have my Bible, it's page 992 is where we're at. If you've got your Bible, you'll probably have a different page number, and I'm sure you'll be able to find it. If not, you probably have a table of contents. But I want to encourage you, like, even if you didn't, like, you know, those scriptures are going to be on the screen behind me. We'll have that up there all three weeks. But I know for me personally, this is an expository series, which means I'm going to start at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to go all the way through the end of the book. And sometimes when you do expository series, it's kind of helpful to have your your study Bible in hand. And so I just want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, fantastic. If not, maybe next week, bring your study Bibles. We just kind of do an expository series, just reading through the text and kind of talking about it and filling in meaning and application and those sorts of things. Now, a little bit of background before we actually dive into Titus 1, verse 1. The book of Titus, and we call it a book. I mean, there's 66 of them that we refer to as books that are in the Bible. But the truth is, those books are lots of different genres. Historical pieces, apocalyptic pieces, and Titus-specific, it's a letter. In fact, it's a personal letter that is addressed to a guy named Titus from the Apostle Paul. And you'll find lots of letters, especially in the New Testament, addressing sometimes it's an entire church. And so when you're in First and Second Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Thessalonians, that is the Apostle Paul sitting down and writing a letter to an entire church in a particular city. That is a letter that he sends to a church. Sometimes, however, he'll sit down and he will pen a letter that's just to one person. It's a personal letter from Paul to an individual. And so Timothy, he will write a letter to Timothy. The one that we're going to study is a personal letter to Titus. Fleeman is another personal letter. And so in it, it's sort of a, it's a challenge to study it. Because it's sort of like you're having, you're only able to hear one side of a particular conversation. For example, I don't know if you ever had the experience of listening to somebody talk on the phone, but you can't hear what's being said on the other side of the phone. But from your perspective, you're trying to make out what's being talked about and what the contents of the conversation is. You're trying to piece together big gaps based on what you're hearing on your end of the phone, of the conversation. It's sort of true in a letter. Now, we have Paul's perspective of what he's writing about. And what we try to do is, based on this one-sided perspective of Paul's letter, we're trying to make out what's going on with Titus's life or what's going on in the church that Titus is trying to work with. And so it could be a challenge at times to do that. But here's the background, like here is the setting of the letter. The situation is a church plant. And I don't know if any of you have ever been a part of a brand new church plant, meaning you're a part of a team that is starting a brand new church or you're getting involved in a brand new church. And I'm telling you, it can be exciting, it can be thrilling, and usually it's just bursting full of expectancy and energy and enthusiasm and this thing typically speaks even to the people who have an entrepreneurial spirit, like that's just kind of how you're wired and how you're knit together. The idea of church planting can be a very exciting thing. And I'm always amazed at the stories in church planting of the levels of commitment and time and energy that I've seen people invest into this new venture, this new church plant. But church planting is hard. And the statistics tell us that the majority of them don't make it. 
In fact, let me share with you, the, the statistics kind of vary, and they're kind of all over the map, so I'm not even sure which ones to necessarily, that's the absolute truth. But let me give you two different researchers and their opinion on uh, church plants and the statistics of whether or not they'll actually make it. One survey says that 40% of all brand new church plants will not make it to one year. Immediately, 40% will not make it to one year. 80% will close within five years. And of the 20% of those that make it past the five years, 80% of those won't make it past a second five years. So that's not very positive. Like, that's a very grim picture of whew, church planning could be difficult. It could be a very hard thing. Another study, and this one I kind of tend to, I would lean towards this one, is studies across many different denominations, they reveal that about 31% or almost a third of all church plants will not make it to the one-year mark. But 69% will make it to the four-year mark, but their average attendance will remain 80 people and they'll continue to struggle to exist. So church planting can be a very difficult thing. If you've ever been a part of one, then you, you might know. So while I don't know who they all are, I would say, you know, good job to the people who began this church back in 1956. They defied all of the statistics and the odds. And at 930, the 930 service, Helen Richards, I don't know if you know Helen Richards uh, here, and her daughter, Sherry Hodgetts, uh, were here at the 930 service. They're the only two people at this church who could go all the way back to 1956. They were here for the very first service when the doors opened up. So good job to Helen and Sherry and just defying all the odds. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why a church plant might not make it. Like, there's lots of reasons. One might be it just has a lack of vision. Like, they planted a church, but there's no vision behind it. Or the vision's angry. You know what I mean by that? Like churches get angry, they get in a fight, and they split, and what happens? Well, we'll go start a new church. Well, what was the foundation of that new church? Anger and conflict. It's hard to sustain a church when it's being birthed out of, born out of a vision of, we don't like those people, they don't like us, so we're taking our marbles and starting all over again somewhere else. Sometimes it's a lack of finances. Not even that, not even that they don't have a group of people, it's just money is tight and church planting is expensive and it, it just doesn't make Sometimes it's a lack of qualified leaders. Sometimes it's a lack of understanding the context. Like you've planted a brand new church, but you're in a context that you're, no, they don't talk like that. They don't sing those songs. They don't, like it just it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes it's a general spirit of unresponsiveness to the gospel. There's just some areas that are harder for a church to make it. Now, if the percentages of church plants that don't make it in America with these statistics in a place that we still consider ourselves to be largely Christian, although increasingly less so, can you imagine trying to start a brand new church in a place that has never even heard of a guy named Jesus and whose concepts and theology are completely foreign? In that context, the odds are stacked against you because a church plant is fragile, it's susceptible, it's embryonic, and it's got to be cared for and tended and protected, and it isn't even capable of being resilient just yet because it's, so, it's like a little baby church, and it needs protection, and this is the situation that Paul is writing about. Now, we know that Paul is the author. He identifies himself in the opening verse. Paul is an apostle in whose apostleship he is a church planter. He goes on missionary journeys, and he plants churches in large metropolitan cities across the Roman Empire, and this is Paul's typical strategy. He goes into a city and he gets a job working with his hands making tents. That's what Paul is. He is a tent maker by trade. And so he works all day making tents, and then he spends other time that he has available going into the synagogues and teaching that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And he spends a lot of time trying to convince his fellow Jews to believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
And then, he, after he goes to the Jews, he'll spend some time even talking to the Gentiles with the same message that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And with all those who will believe, he gathers them together and forms them into community and calls them the ecclesia, which is the Greek word that we translate in the English. You want to know? Church. It means the assembled ones, the called out ones. See, church in the New Testament is never about a building. Buildings are great resources, but when the New Testament uses the phrase the church, it's never referring to four walls and a roof. It's referring to those who are believers in Jesus who have been called out and put together in community. We are church. And so this is Paul's typical trend. Goes into a city, preaches to the Jews, then also to the Gentiles, forms them into one community. But Paul never stays long in any city. In fact, out of the five missionary journeys, most of whom you can read about in the book of Acts, he'll spend maybe a year in this city. He'll spend 18 months in the city of Corinth. He'll actually spend three years in Ephesus. But that was a long time for Paul to stay in the same city, in the same church for three years. And then he just moves on. And he starts all over again in a brand new city. And his attempt is, is while he's there, to equip and to train and raise up leaders and leave the church then in good hands, praying that it will flourish and that it will grow and that it will survive. But church planting's rough. And it was rough for Paul. Like, Paul will sometimes brag about, you know all the things I've been through as a church planter and as apostle of Jesus. In fact, he gets in a little kind of conflict with some people in the church of Corinth, and it kind of forces Paul's hand to say, you think... You, listen, if anyone has suffered because of Jesus, it's me. He'll say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And even Paul thinks, I'm out of my mind for talking like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Which, by the way, if I ever see Paul get on a ship with me, I'm getting off. Like, that's just... I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in the danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concerns for all the churches. Who is weak that I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin that when it happens, I don't inwardly burn? Well, after Paul's first imprisonment, he's been in prison several times, after his first imprisonment, he finds himself on an island called Crete, and he preaches the gospel. Now, when he gets to Crete, there may have already been believers on the island. It's not really clear. We do know from Acts chapter 2, remember the day of Pentecost where Peter delivers the first gospel message? In it, it lists those who hear the speaking in tongues in their own language. And it says in Acts 2.11, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And so we at least knew there were some Jews on the island of Crete who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And and heard Peter. And so it's possible that maybe Paul became connected with them. But here's what you need to know about Cretans and the island of Crete. They were notoriously immoral. Like all sorts of immorality happened there, and they were known for it. They had a reputation. When you travel the Roman Empire, if they asked where you were from, and you said Crete, you'd probably say like this, Crete. And when you did, everyone goes, 
Crete sort of like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. What happens on the island of Crete stays on the island of Crete. Paul will even say, one of their own poets, like a Cretan poet will even say, he'll quote him in Titus 1.12, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Right? That's what they were known for. Paul will remind them, hey, remember before you came into Christ, you remember what your old life was like? He'll say in Titus 3.3, at one time we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So, not only is this a new upstart church plant, but it is in one of the roughest mission fields you could find, the Cretans. And for whatever reason, and we don't know why, Paul has to leave the island before he's done doing what he wants to do. The church wasn't really in a position to see Paul go. So what Paul will do is he will either send or leave behind his ministry partner, Titus, in Crete to finish what Paul started. Now, this is actually pretty common. Paul will have ministry partners, and you've heard their names before, guys like Timothy or Barnabas or Luke or Mark. Or you know, These are all men who travel with Paul on his missionary journeys, and they often get sent to churches that have already been started to make sure they're doing okay or to deliver a particular message. They are sons in the faith, so to speak, ministry associates of Paul. And so Titus gets left in Crete to finish the job that Paul was unable to do. Now, a little bit about Titus. Who's this Titus guy? Now, we don't know a lot about him, but he was actually was at the center of a very early controversy in Christianity. Like, there was a conflict, a brouhaha that broke out, and it kind of revolved around Titus. Because one of the earliest conflicts in the church was an argument of what it meant to actually become a Christian. It was an argument over, how does somebody become a Christian? Like, right? How do, you, how do you become a Christian? That's the question, and conflict broke out over it. Paul will say, listen... It's about God's grace and mercy, how it's now extended to everyone, not only the Jews, but also Gentiles, where they're finding salvation through faith and belief in Jesus, and that's it. That's it. Well, there's another group of Christians who were Jewish, who they were teaching, listen, if the Gentiles want to become a part of God's family, a part of God's people, if they want to become a Christian, they've got to go through the law to get there. Just like us, they got to obey the food laws. And one of the big sticking points is circumcision itself. And so another group was saying, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. So could you imagine that in the new members class, like the deal killer? What do we have to do? Circumcision. <laughs> no, thank you. Like, that's like, so I'm glad we got past that part. Well, Titus was a Greek. What that means is, he wasn't circumcised, and this became a mini-scandal. You mean to tell me you're going to let a guy be uncircumcised, be part of the family of God? And so this is what it says. Paul will say this in Galatians 2, kind of talking about the incident in verse 1 to 5. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. And I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles because I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. What happens is Paul receives a revelation and he's preaching the gospel and he thinks, maybe I should double check this with the leaders back in Jerusalem to make sure that my gospel is the gospel. So he goes back to Jerusalem, shares the revelation. Here's what I've been teaching the Gentiles, making sure, right, this is, this is the gospel, right? And they say, yes, it is. Verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. 
Because this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus only to make us slaves. So we did not give in to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So you see what's happening? Some false teachers, false believers are accusing Titus he can't really be a Christian until he gets circumcised. And Paul says, oh no, that ain't going to happen. And so he made sure that Titus remained uncircumcised because of that very reality. But what's interesting, you've got two different sons in the faith. One is Timothy and the other is Titus. And Paul treats both of them completely different. For Timothy, he's, his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek, which means Timothy wasn't circumcised either. But Paul will take Timothy around his arm and say, listen, my friend, it's going to go best for you in ministry if this isn't an issue, so why don't we go ahead and get circumcised? Like, and so what will happen is Paul will have Timothy circumcised, not because it's a matter of salvation, but because he knows why let this be an unnecessary issue for uh, uh, it just shouldn't be a problem for us. It sort of be like um, if I were pastoring at the First Presbyterian Church of South Bend, I would not wear this. I wouldn't wear sandals, I wouldn't have blue jeans on, I wouldn't wear shorts, which I could do here, or, you know, or a t-shirt, even, even this. I'm at the first Presbyterian church in South Bend, I would probably wear a suit and all the vestments, because that would, right? And why would I do that? Because of a matter of salvation? No, because it would go well with me. Why let this be, a, here I could practically wear a Speedo, I think, at times, and I'm sure. I'm going to try it next week and see what happens. No, just, just, just kidding, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, that's all right, it's all right. Um, why? Why would you do that? Because, well, why make this, it'll go well for me in ministry. If, no, don't make this, it's a stupid issue. Don't let that be an issue. And so for Timothy, he gets circumcised so that it won't be an issue. But as soon as somebody comes along and says, well, Titus has to be circumcised or he's not saved, Paul goes, uh-uh, we don't play by that. Titus will not get circumcised. because So you see the difference here. I always picture Timothy and Titus getting together later in their life and Titus kind of making fun of them, like, you had to get circumcised. You know, just kind of all right, one last thing before we start reading Titus. And I think it will help us understand why Paul is writing. And let me say that a church of Jesus Christ isn't really free to just decide on its own what it's going to do or what it's going to be like or what it's going to teach. There are things I know that change. I mean, you see that all the time. Change takes place because of context and culture and day and age, and that's fine. I think that's good and healthy even. But there are things that are fundamentals that make us a church, that, that allow us to say we are a church of Jesus Christ, and in those, we aren't free to change those fundamentals if what allows us to properly call ourselves a church of Jesus. See, a church doesn't have a mission. I know we say that a lot, our mission, our vision, and, and I like ours, but it's not like we get to come up with our own mission. No, no, God has a mission, and because he has a mission, there's a church. It's a little subtle difference, but because God has a mission, there is a church. This is why we exist, because God is doing something in Jesus here on the earth. And so we aren't free to decide whether we think the gospel should be this or, mm, no, I, nowadays we think the gospel should be something else. It's not open to revision and change. We're not free to decide whether or not we want to actually go into the world and declare the good news of the kingdom of God when Jesus very clearly says, if you belong to me, if you're following after me, then he sends us out with all authority in heaven and on earth to make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And Sometimes I can't help but wonder if there's a lot of churches that do exist that maybe they should just take the name church off of their building. Because what's happening on the inside has absolutely nothing to do with the mission of God. And I mean, without being too judgmental, but I mean, 
Now, there are churches that are so mired in legalism that they try to teach or preach salvation comes apart or in addition to God's grace. Or churches that think their sole purpose of existence is for their own comfort and for their own preferences and how they like things to be done. Or churches that are so inwardly focused they don't care about the kind of people that Jesus cares about. Or churches that are aren't just even apathetic to those that Jesus loves, but intentionally shuts them out because they're not the right race or they don't come from the right socioeconomic background or because they're considered unclean or impure. Call yourself whatever you want, but don't use church because that's got to mean something. It's sort of like a McDonald's. Like, if you go into McDonald's, which uh, I think this is what the one on Miami Street's going to look like when it's all done, I, th- I think. Like, this is what it'll look like. But imagine going into McDonald's, walking up to the counter and saying, I like a Big Mac and I like fries, and and the cashier points to the menu, and when you look up, you notice all they have on there is pizza and tacos. And she says, we don't serve Big Macs and fries. This is McDonald's. How do you not serve Big Macs and fries? See, to be a McDonald's means something. There's a particular brand. There's a particular menu. There's a particular... You do Big Macs and fries by virtue of what? You are a McDonald's. You do not go into McDonald's and expect pizza or tacos. That's something else, but it's not McDonald's. In the same way, and I know it's kind of a crass illustration, we're kind of a franchise of Jesus, so to speak. We're not, just free, we're not free to sell tacos and pizzas when Jesus clearly prefers Chick-fil-A nuggets. <laughs> but apparently not on Sundays. <sighs> Which is why the flesh desires Chick-fil-A on Sundays more than any other day of the week. Let me give you three things. These are the overall issues that are threatening this young church plant in Crete. Here they, here they are. Just, you'll see this now for the rest of the book of Titus. Three things. One is a lack of spiritual leadership. This is a real issue for them, a lack of spiritual leadership. Number two, there's false teachers among them that are teaching things that ought not to be taught. And number three, just the immoral behavior and lives of the Christians in the church. And those are the three main issues that are now threatening the very existence of this very young embryonic church plant. Okay, that was a long intro, wasn't it? Now let's go to Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Titus 1, verse 1, page 992. Here's what it says. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth and leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at this appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son, and our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is one long sentence. It is not, it is, in the Greek, this is the longest introduction that Paul gives in all of his letters. Like, it is huge, and it's one long, continuous, four-verse sentence. Now, let's unpack what he says. He begins by addressing, it's me, Paul, because in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, when you wrote a letter, you began with who you are. And I have no idea why we ever got away from that. Right? Like, if you send me something, I want to know up front who it is. Like, I don't want to turn the page. I don't want to scroll down to the bottom. Love, sincerely. Start from the very beginning. This is Jeremy writing to you, Sam. And I go, oh, it's Jeremy. Right? That's, right? That's a, but that's how it works back then. So Paul begins with his introduction. But normally, Paul will just simply say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church and so-and-so, or Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus to this individual so-and-so, not for Titus. Titus gets one honking long sentence. A huge introduction, but in it, it's significant because Paul is already in the very opening addressing the the issues and the situations that are facing the church. And so while it's unique, it's important. 
because what you see here in the introduction is that he is more than just declaring that he's an apostle, he declares the very purpose of his apostleship. And so when you go back in verse 1, he'll say, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus for something, and it's for the sake of a message. This is what he means by for the sake of the knowledge of the truth that Paul has been called as an apostle for the sake of a message. When you get to verse 2, he'll elaborate and say, I was called to be an apostle for the sake of hope, a hope that has been given to us based on a promise that God made to himself before time even began. Like, could you imagine the weight of that? There is a promise that God has made even before the beginning of time, and that's why I'm an apostle, for the sake of this message and for the sake of this hope. And so Paul elaborates. This this isn't like a whim. This isn't a fly-by-night religion. From the beginning of time, God has made a promise, and it gives to us hope, and that's why I'm an apostle. And he'll go on, and he'll he'll say next time, he's an apostle for the sake of a message that, in the language he uses, is that has been entrusted to him. And the language of entrusted means that what he has in his possession isn't really his own. When you're entrusted with something, it's not yours. It belongs to somebody else. They're just asking you to tend to it, to care for it, to look after it. It doesn't belong to Paul. It belongs to someone else. It's just only been entrusted to his care. And what this means is Paul is not free to alter the message. It doesn't matter what Paul's personal opinion is. It doesn't matter what the culture around him is saying. It has been handed, he's been handed a message. He'll say to Timothy, he's been given a deposit. He's been entrusted with the gospel message. He couldn't change it if he wanted to. It isn't his to change. And here's where Paul is referencing the problem. The gospel, as those false teachers are talking about it, have distorted it, and they're teaching things that are false. So skipping ahead, if you've got your Bibles open to Titus chapter 1, let your eyes go down to verse 10. I know I'm kind of fast-forwarding just a little bit. But in verse 10, he says, here's the issue. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that ought not to be taught. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. And Paul said, look, the church remains the church only when it is faithful to the gospel entrusted to it. And this is the problem. So what you get then in beginning of verse 5 is what Paul's going to do about it. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5 here. And we'll read the rest of the chapter. The reason I left you in Crete was that... Now, here's where your attention should perk up because Paul very clearly lays out what's going on. Here's why I left you in Crete. In order that you might put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, who's upright and holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And then here's the two verses we read earlier. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets have said it. Cretans are always liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. 
so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to these Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Task number one. You need to straighten out what was left unfinished. How are we going to do this? Appoint elders in every town. I need, you to go, I need you to find spiritual leadership. I need you to appoint elders in every town. Now, Paul will say to Timothy to do the exact same thing, and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it will give a list of uh, qualities of elders there. It seems for Paul, if a church is going to grow, if it's going to survive, if it's going to mature, if it's going to last, it has to have spiritual leadership. For Paul, there must be some men who love Jesus and are wise, full of the Spirit, and capable of teaching the gospel and protecting it from those who would cause it to be thwarted. Now, when we use the word elder, I don't know if we're really familiar with that, so to speak, but in the first century you would be, especially if you had a Jewish background, because this goes back to the Old Testament. Like Moses and Joshua and other leaders in the Old Testament would often call the elders of Israel to them for either communication, for decision-making, for those sorts of things. And who were the elders in the Old Testament? They were the heads of families. They were the patriarch of the family. They were heads of tribes. They were the elders of Israel. And they would oftentimes be gathered together. And in Paul's mind, what happens in the New Testament is as churches get planted in different cities, and my picture is those churches were house churches, that there would be an elder, a spiritual leader, who would lead every house church. So throughout the island of Crete, you would have different house churches, and every house church would have an elder. That's what he pictures as being necessary for good spiritual leadership and for this church to be able to make it and to last and to grow and to survive. In fact, there's a scene in the book of Acts where Paul is leaving the city of Ephesus, and he knows he's never going to be back there again, and most likely uh, they won't ever see his face again. So he calls for the elders of Ephesus to meet him, and he gives them a charge. I'm going to read It's in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he says this to him. He says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And then if you skip a couple verses to verse 25, he'll say, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that, listen, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch. Now listen to what elders do. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did I showed you that by the, this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of our Lord Jesus himself when he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And it says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. The emphasis here, like it is in Titus, is on the protective teaching ministry of the elders. Because like Paul, the elders have been entrusted with something as well. In, back in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, he refers to them as overseers. Since an overseer manages God's household, that is the very definition of an overseer. It comes from the Greek word ekonomos, which is from house, meaning steward or manager. That's what the elders are doing. It's the same idea Paul spoke about himself. Elders are entrusted with God's work. Sim- they simply manage someone else's property, and in this, they're to manage the legacy which had been handed on. In verse 9 of Titus 1, it says, An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. In Paul's mind, when unhealthy ideas infect the church, it should be the elders who should be capable of diagnosing the disease and then handing on healthy teaching. Well, here at the Living Stones Church, we have elders. In fact, we've got five here. In fact, on their bulletin, on the back side of the bulletin, is a list of their names and their phone numbers. If you need to call them at 3 in the morning, you should call them at 3 in the morning. And so um, if, I could, if we get our elders, if you wouldn't mind the, the elders of the Living Stones Church to come on up here for just a moment. Uh, they're very good-looking men, and uh, I've asked them to come up and just look pretty is their main function here. And so let me, let me introduce to you your elders at the Living Stones Church, and talk about them for a moment and they've, how they function here at the Living Stones Church. Uh, the gentleman who's now coming up right there on that step, on that step, that is my dad. That is Chuck Barrington, and uh, he has been here for now uh, 42 years, right? He's been 43 years. That's right, 43 years he's now been here. Um, he was the preacher of this church from 1975 to 1987. It is the second longest tenure of any preacher here. Uh, so that's, that's my dad over there. Over here is Randy Templeton. He is originally from Mississippi, but he, what year did you come to South Bend, Indiana? 35 years ago. I have known, Randy is like a father to me. He has watched me grow up. I have known Randy what feels like my entire, entire life. Uh, and Randy, uh, in fact, I've, I've never been as impressed with Randy in terms of how serious he takes being an elder and even becoming one. Like he talked to coworkers and wanted to know what they thought of him and his reputation and would he be somebody who could serve with honor in terms of just his own business uh, life at LaSalle Bristol where he works. But uh, my dad and Randy both were elders and they go way back. Like even to the times when this church was doing lots of transitioning and moving in different directions and trying to be outward and, and, and where we are today. And so, and both of them have such stoic, and I mean this positively, but anchoring-like personalities. So when I'm like freaking out and just all over the place, oh my God, look, oh, you know, like, <laughs> both of them were just so good at just like, okay, calm down, one, calm down, and two, did God call us to this or not? He did. Well, then we're just going to keep moving forward. And no matter what was happening, it was just a very constant, very stoic, very even-keeled presence, which has allowed us to be where we are today. Next to my dad over here is Jeff Gritton. Jeff is also on staff here at the Living Stones Church. He is the pastor of ministries and pastor of small groups. He has over 20 years of ministry experience and serves very effectively and well. Over here is Jim Ruth. Jim Ruth has a huge faith and passion. Like he just believes that God is going to work it all out. And every time we kind of set a goal here, uh, it is Jim's voice that says no. And he has just a great heart and passion, especially for those who are in recovery and addictions. And, and I continually hear stories from people like, oh, yeah, Jim already called and he already showed up. And like he's just amazing pastoral work. On the very end is Jim Silk here. And Jim Silk has a great... 
Is your wife here, June? Is that what I... Oh, your son is like, okay. You want to talk about a passion for generosity and giving and a man who has a story that continually illustrates how when things look really dark, God comes in at the last moment. Jim is the quietest among us, but when he speaks, we all listen because he's a man of great wisdom. So these, would you give your elders a hand here? Let's start with this. Now, let me, let me tell you, there'll be five functions of the elders at Livingstone's Church. Like, what do they do? Here, here's what our elders here do, five functions. Number one is they shepherd the flock. Like, they just take literally the metaphor of shepherd, and what does that look like? So when you're in pastoral need or crisis or we haven't seen you in a long while or you're having surgery or you're sick or, or something along those lines, their task is to, to tend to those things, to shepherd the flock, to be aware of where is it and how are they and those sorts of things. Number two. They champion the vision of the Living Stones Church. I mean, we know what God has called us to, and they are the biggest cheerleaders and champions and protectors of, no, we're being called to reach into the south side of South Bend in this particular way, and this is what it ought to look like. Number three, they are protectors of orthodoxy, and that's the topic of Titus that we've been talking about. What that means is, it is their task to make sure that Jesus keeps getting preached, and it is Jesus. And it's the gospel of Jesus, and that doesn't, that's not subject to our whim or our fancy or our culture or anything else, that it is the gospel. They protect orthodoxy. Number four, they're a voice of wisdom and discernment, meaning that when we have conversations about where we're heading, direction, and what about this, and budgets and staffing and those sorts of things, they're always a voice of wisdom and counsel and discernment and those sorts of things. And how it actually works here is like, I have never seen a vote take place among our leaders, just never. Like, they've never, like, you know, three to two or, you know, I mean, that's never happened. What happens is we talk until we're all in agreement and unanimously uh, so, or we just don't move forward. And that's how it's been here since, since my time here, and, and it just it seems healthy. So their voice of wisdom and discernment. And finally, number five, they are a place of accountability with me, with the staff, with each other, in the sense of that no, any question can be asked to make sure that, no, we're still okay and where we need to be heading and moving and, and everything's kind of above level, so to speak. So that's the five functions of our elders. I wanted you to know that this morning and introduce them to you if you hadn't had a chance. So thank you, gentlemen. You did a great job this morning. Good, very good. Okay. I'll wrap this up here. Be- because you're looking for healthy spiritual leadership, Paul gives qualities of the spiritual leadership. And I don't think like an exhaustive checklist. I just think, especially given the island of Crete, this is what your elders should probably look like. These are the qualities that they should probably, they should be blameless. He says that twice, especially in light of Cretans. They ought to be a one-woman kind of a man because womanizers as elders won't be very helpful, especially in Crete, if you know what I'm saying. And so that's what Paul says, right? And I ask the question, like, how did he do with his own household? Like, look at his children. Like, how, how did that go? Make sure they're not overbearing. They shouldn't be drunk or violent or pursuing dishonest gain. In fact, on the opposite extreme, they should be hospitable. And they should love what is good. They should be self-controlled and upright and holy and disciplined and sound when it comes to the gospel. So that's what you're looking for. So spiritual leadership is key in terms of making it. Now, when you get to verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1, Paul here, that's where he describes the problem, the false teachers, and he says they're from the circumcision group, which I think that's interesting. That's how they get labeled. So I'm going to guess they're Jewish Christians who are teaching you have to go through the law of Moses, especially circumcision, to be a Christian. They're the circumcision group. How would you like to have that on your team jersey, circumcision group? So they're ruining whole households. And he's telling Titus, go shut them up and then appoint elders who then will have responsibility of shutting up false teachers if they should ever try to infiltrate again because 
they're just teaching strange myths and emphasizing genealogies, and they've got detestable morality, and their minds and consciences are corrupted. And here's what I'd say in the end. The Living Stones Church, that's us, we've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't ours. It's been handed down to us for the last 2,000 years. And we're not free to change it. We aren't free to alter it. We don't have the luxury of adding to it. It is central to what it means to even call ourselves a church. Now, I'm not saying that nothing ever changes around the church. And you have some churches and some elders where that is their goal, but nothing ever changes. No, no, this is about the gospel itself, its nature and its essence. Protect that. There's a deposit of faith that must be passed on. And for Paul, then, you need teachers who know the Christian faith. And I believe it's important that the church has an authoritative voice that can say what are the normative Christian beliefs and practices, especially in a young church plant that's vulnerable to all sorts of silliness, a voice that's able to say, wait a minute, that's not the gospel. That's just another form of legalism that's trying to get us into heaven outside of the cross of Jesus. Or that's, that's not the gospel. That's just a message of prosperity that has nothing to do with the gospel. Or that's not the gospel. That's the American dream. And the American dream and the gospel are not one and the same thing. That's not the gospel. That's just a smorgasbord of relativity and new age spirituality. That has nothing to do with Jesus. Or that's not the gospel either. That's just an attempt to get people to believe that a few self-help principles and how-to lists will finally lead them to happiness. For 2,000 years, men and women have devoted their lives to Jesus of Nazareth and have paid with their lives to go and tell nations and tribes and people groups all over the planet about this one true God and his crazy love manifested in the person of Jesus. Please tell me that the message doesn't get summed up then in something as silly as, don't worry, be happy. Tell me that they didn't cross the world risking life and limb for something so trite. No, it's more than that. What we need is to be able to, oh, this is what's been entrusted to This is the gospel, and this is why it matters. This is why Jesus, why the cross, why resurrection. So my prayer is that God will raise up spiritual leaders here who are capable of protecting and teaching that message that's entrusted to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We're grateful that you are a God who entrusts your precious things to us, and we recognize and confess we are clay jars so easily broken and marred and yet you still use even our weaknesses to bring yourself glory and honor. And so we ask for protection of the message of the gospel, of your son being the Messiah, and all the implications that he is the fulfillment of all of your promises. In him, it is all yes. And so let us pass that on to a new generation faithfully. Would you raise up among us leaders who know and can speak powerfully that message? That's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.